Well, on news again this week, um, it's been full of images of refugees trying to make their way to, uh, to newer home across Europe. Thousands, hundreds of thousands are trying to, to find um, the way through. And uh, these are some of the uh, pictures we've been seeing. Uh, quite heartbreaking as they've uh, faced new razor wire fences that have been erected to try and stop the flood through certain countries. Um, it's a challenging situation, isn't it? But what would make those people leave their countries, take everything they have with them, take their children, and in some cases walk many miles to try and find um, a new home? Well, I think it's two things, really. It's peace and it's hope. They're desperate to escape from the, uh, the war in their own country. They want to find somewhere where there will be peace, where they will be safe. And there's that hope, isn't it? That hope that they will find somewhere, that they will be able to start a new home somewhere where they don't have to risk their lives every day. Peace and hope. They're what we all desire, what we all need. And peace and hope are what we're going to be looking at this morning as we look at this passage from Romans. But not just limited to this life, not just peace between human beings, but a much bigger peace and a much bigger hope. But before we come to, to our passage this morning, let's just remind ourselves where we've got to in Romans so far, the story so far. But first, we started off with the bad news, which was, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We saw how everyone is guilty of rejecting God and his glory as a supreme value in our lives. And therefore, we all deserve his just punishment. But then came the good news. The good news, as it carries on in that verse, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. For those who believe that Christ came to save them, they've been declared innocent of all charges laid against them. They've been released from, from slavery to sin. They've been made right with God. Well, chapter 5 begins with the word, since we have been justified through faith. In other words, because of all that we've been talking about in those first four chapters, what is it that we can now enjoy? Where does our being declared innocent actually leave us? What difference does it make to, to our lives? In short, what are the blessings of being a Christian? Well, there are two particular blessings that come out of this passage, as we've said, peace and hope. Let's look first at the fact that we have peace with God. Peace is easy, isn't it, for some to take for granted if, um, if we're not going through an experience of, of conflict. Um, but for many, it is something that they, they yearn for. For example, um, should we come back a little bit? We'll come on to that one in a minute. So thanks, John. Um, if we think about um, those living in Syria at the moment, war-torn countries like that, other parts of the, the Middle East, but also think about those who are living at home where there is it may be emotional, maybe physical uh, anger and abuse going on, or those just internally who are racked with uh, turmoil and, uh, and guilt. But the greatest peace that we can Experience And the one which provides an answer to all these different types of conflict is being at peace with God. Chapter 5 starts, Since 
we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. It's difficult, isn't it, if we haven't lived through war, and uh, many, most of us here probably wouldn't have done. Um, I think John and Margaret are probably some of the exceptions actually here this morning. Um, how to imagine the feeling of euphoria that you'd experience as peace is declared. Uh, the picture, if we can bring it up now, John, is uh, some of the celebrations going on in uh, VE Day in uh, 1945. You know, these people know now that they are free from the worries of war, the worry of the sound of, uh, uh, of a bomber overhead, the sound of a siren going to, to run to the, the air raid shelters. Maybe the fear of receiving a telegram saying that your, your husband or your son has been killed in action. That is all gone. There's peace. No wonder there's the, the, the sights there of rejoicing. But when we have peace with God, again, it is a cause for serious rejoicing. Heaven rejoices. We rejoice because we know that we were once sinners or enemies, as it says here in this passage of God, but we are now at peace with him. We are now friends with God. We no longer need to fear death. But in the same way that it's difficult for those of us who've never experienced war to fully appreciate what it must have been like to have been told the war was over, it's difficult for those who are not Christians to appreciate what we feel when we are told that we are now at peace with God. Because if you don't realize that you are at war with God, then you won't see the importance of peace with God. Because with God, you are either an enemy or a friend. And the devil's craftiest tactic is to make people think that um, they can be a Switzerland, they can be um, a neutral. But the Bible tells us there is no neutrality with God. Uh, there's no such thing as a casual acquaintance with God. Someone you can just call up now and again if you, if you feel like it. He's either an enemy or a good friend. And that's because it's impossible for God, as we were looking at the other week, who is perfectly holy, perfectly just, to be at peace with people who don't accept his kingship, who continue to put their own glory before his glory. He can't simply turn a blind eye to that. But the amazing thing uh, that we read in this passage is that God doesn't wait for us to become friends before he shows us his love. Have a look at verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Hallelujah. Well, look at verse 10. While we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. What makes human peace processes so difficult is that no one wants to make the first step, do they? But God made the first step. Jesus died for all of us who, by our nature, don't want to accept his rule over us. Who don't want him interfering with the way we want to live our lives. Who don't accept that he is the son of God. And that is the amazing act of grace that enable us to have peace with him. 
an act of love that we, we didn't deserve. Peace is all the work of God, and it is achieved through Jesus. But we can't accept, we can't enjoy the, uh, the blessing of peace with God unless we accept that gift of Christ's death for us, unless we believe that it was truly necessary, that we were powerless ourselves to do anything about it, to be reconciled with God. Look back at, at verse 1 again. It says, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And there's a question I want to put to you all this morning. Have you done that? Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? Because once we have done that, the amazing thing is that you can then go immediately from being an enemy to being a friend. If for humans, at the end of a, a war, peace is notoriously difficult to, to achieve. Um, we see pictures like uh, this here, and we see these handshakes, and we think, that'd be brilliant if that peace holds, but we really wonder, because we've seen it so many times before, that it probably won't, that there'll be further peace process and further peace processes. And we know that at a personal level, don't we? When we have a bust up with someone, um, we want to make things right again, but it takes time to build that, that trust again in the relationship. But with God, there is no lingering distrust. There's no trial period to see whether the peace will hold. There is full pardon, full forgiveness. The peace accord we have with God is not like our fragile peace accords that, um, that are constantly being broken and renegotiated. It's a permanent accord that can never be broken. And the reason it can never be broken is it's sealed with the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus is described as the Prince of Peace. He's the one who achieved lasting peace. He is the peace negotiator. But Jesus didn't just act as a third party negotiator between us and the Father. He was an integral part of it. His life was the, the price that was paid so that we could have peace with God. Peace with God, standing secure in his grace is an amazing blessing to, to enjoy. But we also have a future blessing to look forward to. Um, because have a look at verse 2. It says, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Hope in our vocabulary is usually to do with sort of uncertainty, isn't it? It's, it's um, because we don't know the future that we we wish that it would turn out okay. John Lennon's song, if you remember, Happy Christmas in brackets, War is Over. This is what he sings. He sings a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Let's hope it's a good one without any fear. He's saying we want it to be a good one without any fear, but we're not sure whether it will be. Because it's down to us. War is over. If you want it, it goes on. And we know that even if we do want it, it's often beyond our power. Hope, on the other hand, as used in the Bible, is a more certain expectation of what will happen. Because in this case, it's not down to us. It's down to God. And we can trust in his promises. It says here, we boast 
in the hope of the glory of God. Back in chapter 3, we were forbidden to boast. But that was in our ability to, to try and keep God's standards. When it comes to boasting in God, that is perfectly acceptable. So what is this certain expectation to do with the glory of God? Well, there are many ways in which God's glory has been uh, revealed already. It's displayed in creation. It's all around us, isn't it? It was revealed in Jesus Christ. Beginning of John's Gospel, chapter 1, this is what it says. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And his glory was made most clear in his death and in his resurrection. Just before his arrest, Jesus prayed to his father. And this is what he he prayed. He prayed, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. So what is that glory that we can still expect with certainty? Well, we can expect that Jesus will come again in glory. He will come back. That's why it says in Titus, so we are called to live holy lives while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But also when he does come, not only will we see his glory, but we will be changed into his glory. We will share in his glory. We were created to be the image and glory of God. As we know, Because of the fall, that image was distorted. We fall short of God's glory. But if we are in Christ, then we will once again share in his glory. John 1 John 3 says, But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The hope of the glory of God is the certain expectation that Jesus will come again and we will share in his glory. Now that seems a good thing to rejoice in, but then back in Romans 5, Paul goes on to say in verse 3, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Now, it's all well and good to rejoice in the certain expectation of um, uh, sharing in God's glory, but how can we glory in our sufferings? Well, that is also linked to sharing in his glory, because if you turn over the page to Romans chapter 8, have a look at um, what it says there in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And the passage goes on to describe how our present sufferings result from uh, the bondage of the world to decay, the fact the world is groaning in pain. No one enjoys suffering. This is not how the world was, was meant to be. And many of us have gone through suffering, many of us are still going through, through suffering. It is the result of living in a fallen world. And the devil may try and use that and uh, try and undermine our faith by by saying, how can you believe in a good God when he allows all this suffering to go on in your life? 
And yet Paul says glory in it. Glory in your suffering. Why? Because we know it says that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Christ is someone in whom we can see perseverance, isn't it? He's someone in whom we can see character. And if we're going to be changed into Christ's glory, then we should be characterized by these same qualities. But you can only demonstrate perseverance, you can only demonstrate character if you've experienced suffering. You don't endure comfort, do you? You don't go on holiday and say, "Um, that was a great holiday, I really, really endured it. You endure suffering. And the reason endurance is positive is that by enduring suffering, you can demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. You can demonstrate patience and gentleness and self-control. You can show love for your enemies. Character is, is formed through having been put to the test. It is suffering that puts our faith to the test. It's no good saying we believe in God when things are going well, but um, at the first time, sign of trouble, then we reject him. How much are our lives characterized by perseverance, character, and hope? How much do we want that? When the apostles were flogged unjustly by the, the um, authorities in the early days of the church, how did they react? Did they... Um, get angry about the injustice of it all. This is what it says in Acts 5. It says the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. They left rejoicing because, it says, they had been counted worthy of suffering, suffering disgrace for the name, for Jesus Christ. Their faith had been put to the test, and they'd showed character. They were told, carried on teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They did it knowing that they'd probably be arrested again, probably be flogged, probably die. But what kept them going was a hope in the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4 says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Well, finally, our hope is confident because we have experienced God's love through the Holy Spirit. Verse 5 says, and hope does not put us to shame. How could hope put us to shame? Well, if it turned out to be a false hope, then that would put us to shame, wouldn't it? So how do we know that our hope um, of glory won't actually disappoint us, won't actually put us to shame? How can we be sure our hope is certain. Well, the answer is given to us, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. To know that you are loved is essential to the well-being of every human being. But whereas not everyone may enjoy the love of another human being, We all have the possibility of knowing the love of God, the love that he's poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It's a love that is abundant. It's uh, it's perfect. It brings with it far greater blessings than any human love. It's a love that accepts us in, in all our weaknesses, 
and all our unattractiveness and all our vulnerability. It's a love that takes us just as we are, not deserving of it, and a love that makes us whole. The Holy Spirit is the one who, who makes us understand that God loves us, that he wants us to be his children, he wants us to be his friends, not his enemies. He's the one who changes us from being children of wrath to children of the promise, the beloved children of God. He's the one who, it says in John's gospel, guides us into all truth. He does the work of, of opening our eyes to see, to see God. And ultimately, that work of conversion, becoming a Christian, is seeing the love of God in Jesus Christ and being moved by that love to put our trust in him. The Holy Spirit enables us to see the love of God. But what if we have become Christians already? If we've accepted that love, we've put our trust in Jesus Christ, but we still don't feel confident in our faith, don't feel confident in our hope, what do we do about it? Because it's no good just trying, trying harder to live a godly life, trying to do the things we, we know we need to do, and then beating ourselves up when we fail. Well, it's growing in our knowledge of God's love for us. And we can only do that by praying that the Holy Spirit would continually reassure us of that love. He would point us to it when, our, when we start to doubt it. And that means asking him to, to help us focus on the way in which God showed his love towards us, pointing us to the death of his son, helping us to understand the true significance of that. Because the depth of love is measured by, on one hand, the, the costliness of the gift that is given. And on the other hand, just how deserving is the one we are giving it to. God gave what was most precious to him. He gave it to us, the death of his son. He allowed his blood to be shed. He allowed him to suffer the punishment for all mankind. And as we saw earlier, he died for us while we were still his enemies, while we were totally undeserving. So if we are struggling to believe in God's love, to feel God's love, then go back to this demonstration, go back to this proof of his love, because love is about giving, love is about action, and God has given the most precious gift to the most undeserving of people. Well, as we come to the end, I pray that you can say, I have peace with God. I boast in the hope of the glory of God. As it says in verse 11, I boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of him, not only do we have the great blessing of peace in this life, we have a great future to look forward to. And so we should rejoice. And it's joy that should mark the believer out from the unbeliever. Remember those scenes of joy on VE Day, 1945? We should, if we are believers here this morning, be the most joyful people in the world. And not because we are freed from physical pain and suffering, but because we have the hope of eternal glory. And that hope is certain. It doesn't depend on ourselves. 
on our financial situation, on our job situation, on our health, on our marital situation. It depends on the love of God which he poured out into our lives. I'm going to finish with a, a prayer from Ephesians 3. It's a, it's a prayer that we would know God's love in all its fullness because it's the full knowledge of that love that, that gives us the power, the strength to live out our Christian lives, to persevere in the, the face of suffering, but also to be motivated to share our hope with those who have yet to enjoy the blessing of peace with God and hope for the future. So let's pray. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen.